the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, there was a time in America, 70s and 80s maybe, maybe 60s, 70s, and 80s, when sometimes book reviews were better and more read and deemed in some respects as or more important than the books they were reviewing themselves. There aren't a lot of reviewers out there these days that keep up that tradition. Uh, Tevi Troy is certainly one of them, which is why we have him on on books so often. And another is my good friend Paul Mirangoff from the Powerline blog, who wrote a piece today at Powerline, a long piece, a book review, really. One permanent revolution deserves another. And I know that the review, having not read the book, is better than the book. It's uh, it, it's it's it hits a lot of interesting themes. And I just I, I know that there are a lot of themes we in the audience talk about, too. So I wanted to get Paul on and talk about Paul. First of all, welcome back. I hope all all's well. Yes. Thank you. Seth. Great to be here. You betcha. So just to get it out of the way and we don't have to do too much with it. There is a book out by one Jeffrey Cabas service. And it's I don't even know the title of the book. What's it called? Permanent Revolution. Rule and Ruin, the downfall of the moderation and destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Perfect. Rule and Ruin, the destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Perfect. Um, And you take um, take this apart. And I want to just go paragraph by paragraph with you if I can, because every one of them is, is a theme I've thought and spoken a lot on. First of all, you say there's a cottage industry of liberalism or liberal analysts that are always writing about the dissent of conservatism and or the Republican Party. And typically what you will find is when a Republican is no longer a threat to them, that is to say they've either either died or retired, they become the model, they become somehow the model Republican that we were all supposed to cherish and love. Think of McCain, uh, Daddy Bush, Reagan, maybe even George W. Bush in some respects, Mitt Romney perhaps, Eisenhower. We're all supposed to love them as the beau ideal of the Republican Party. At the same time, when you read the contemporary accounts of them, they said as vicious things about Goldwater. You heard about Goldwater. You go back and read what was said about Goldwater. It was as vicious as what was said about Trump and Reagan, which was as vicious as almost as what they said about John McCain in his time, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, Goldwater was the one who was going to annihilate us all. With, by uh, Mein Kampf was in San Francisco. Wrote an editorialist at the San Francisco Chronicle in 1964. Don't you know? Yeah. Yeah, we we see Republicans see, seem to uh, age well. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> especially if especially after they've died. It's when they're no longer a threat, right? I mean, there's even a pining for Nixon probably at this point if I'm if if I read the liberal left right. But that happens coterminously with something that's odd because you and I may not see eye to eye on this. I, ju- I just simply don't know. I don't think the Republican Party has changed that much, not that much here and there some. 
with its various standard bearers. Some do it better than others. But the Democratic Party really has changed. I mean, that really is the movement that has shifted, isn't it? I think so. I mean, in the article further down, I, I list what I think are the fixed principles of, of Trump's brand of conservatism, because the, the author, Cabaselli, expanded his book to cover <clears throat> uh, President Trump in a Washington Post op-ed. And he said there are no fixed principles to Trumpism. It's just a will to destroy uh, existing institutions. I identified a number of, of fixed principles, and I think most of them, not all, but most of them are, tra- are traditional conservative principles. The desire to eliminate government regulations that are considered unnecessary and oppressive, cutting uh, or at least controlling non-defense spending, lowering taxes, sharply curtailing, if not eliminating, illegal immigration, improving America's trade deals, appointing judges who are reasonably wedded to the Constitution as written and originally understood, and disengaging from foreign wars. With the exception of the last one and maybe some caveats on the trade deals, these are pretty core traditional conservative principles of the Republican Party. I think so. And I think if not the Republican Party, the modern conservative movement as it was um, born in the late 50s and early 60s with whether you're talking about the Sharon statement that William Buckley put together with the Young Americans for Freedom or if you look at the original first issue of National Review and what they said were their core themes of belief, it's pretty close. It's pretty close to what you get with, obviously, Goldwater, I think a lot of Reagan, and a lot of Trump. As you say, you can quibble here and there, but by and large, it's all pretty much a a continuous ribbon, a continuous theme. Far more continuous, as you've suggested already, than than the Democrats who uh, used to favor tax cuts under Kennedy, uh, now 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 you know oppose them at least for the so-called rich, um, and, and used used to advocate strongly for for colorblind society. Uh-huh. Now they now they hate that uh-huh. concept. Used to used to be in favor of uh, robust free speech. Now they're against that, uh, and so forth. So yeah, they they've moved. And if they were Catholic, pro life. Yes, a lot in the yes. Democratic Party were McGovern was. I mean, a yeah, lot of the Democrats McCarthy. were at one point, really. Yeah, McCarthy, Gene McCarthy was really strongly pro-life. Yeah, you, and I guess Biden was somewhat at some point. Yeah, don't, Joe think. Biden was a thorn in the in the in the NARAL movement's uh, side uh, in the uh, in the nineties. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. And a lot of them shifted. Al Gore was. Uh, Ted Kennedy was. A lot of them shifted their views um, o- over time, and then there's this kind of interesting thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about for a second. I was discussing your piece with a friend of mine, and I said, I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but you're, you're right, Paul. We don't obsess over this the way they do. We often will say it's not your father's or grandfather's Democratic yeah. Party. We will say that, but yeah. they really do obsess over this. Exactly. I don't, I don't know if has there been a book. I should have asked my colleague at Powerline, Steve Hayward, who knows more about Steve. Has, would, there, been a, yeah. has there been a book about, about you know, by a conservative about, you know, the the abandonment of, by the Democratic Party of its principles? I don't think so. I, I never read op-eds about that. Of course, I wouldn't read them in the Washington Post, which is the paper I subscribe to out of necessity for, for blogging purposes. But I, I'm just not aware of, absurd, of conservatives obsessing over that. As I say in the article, we, we take uh, the opposition as we find it and uh, go to war, so to speak, with the opposition that we have. 
So let's pick up on that because I think that's an important thing too. I, and by the way, I think you're right about that book. It hasn't been written. I, I don't know of it if it has been. And I'm not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't waste my time writing it. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't think any about any other of my conservative brethren would either. Yeah. There's. It's right. It's. It's almost so obvious as to as to as to not need it. And I don't even know what good it does. By the way. Uh, that, that, let, let's pause on that for a moment. You know, when you say or I say or someone says it's not your grandfather's Democratic Party, it doesn't it, – I don't know what needle that moves. I mean it's obvious. It's there. It's true. But it's not going to change someone's views very much. I suppose I tried it once. I had a caller who was talking about how Joe Biden isn't the left. And I was saying I understand he may not be of it, but he will answer to it, and that's what matters. Do you think that's the fair distinction? Yes. Biden is basically unmoored by any principle. Right, right. And 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 when the part see the party does the Democratic Party does have something now that it didn't used to do, which is the full embrace of socialism. That that they wouldn't have done that in the nineties. They just wouldn't have. In fact, I remember when they were having struggles in the 88 race with Bush v. Dukakis when they were embarrassed to be called liberals, right? You remember that? They were sure, having, sure. Right? Yeah. But, Bill Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton right. uh, reimagined the Democratic Party uh, as, or, or pretended to as, you know, moderate and centrist. But today there's no embarrassment, shame, or reservation to proclaim yourself a socialist and in the Democratic Party. There just isn't. It seems almost even perhaps a rite of certain passage uh, when you think about it. And that just that's, – that's really new. That's really different, which is what I guess gets to the point you are making and we'll come back to on the other side if I can keep you another segment, Paul, Certainly. Uh, about what it is we have to fight against or what we are fighting against, that – people like this author don't quite understand um let's let's pick up on that on the other side of this break if we can we're talking with paul miringoff from the powerline blog and um really great great book review today he has at powerline one permanent revolution deserves another let's talk about the challenge before us and the challenge conservatism faces when we come right back Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Paul Miringoff from the Powerline blog is our guest. We're talking about his piece, One Permanent Revolution Deserves Another. Paul, you write, left liberals are engaged in an endless, all-encompassing struggle, what we might call a permanent revolution, an old Marxian phrase. Um, talk to us about what that is, what it looks like, how you see it. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a march through the institutions, um, one by one, they, they, you know, academia, higher education, and lower, lower education, pretty, pretty much all the way down to kindergarten almost, is uh, controlled by, by the left now with, and, and warped by identity politics and political correctness. Corporate America, you know, has, has succumbed to a large degree. Um, I, you know, they, the, the attack on policing, uh, on law enforcement, is, is astonishing and, and seemingly successful, although it does risk a, a major backlash. And uh, the war on Christianity, uh, religious worship, whenever it clashes with, uh, ostensibly whenever it clashes with 
LGBT uh, agenda, but really I think um, whenever it, whenever it's just, they view it as an impediment, something that's in the way, they know that uh, religious voters tend to vote uh, Republican, and uh, the, the fewer of them there are, the, the better they feel it's going to be for their revolution, their, their permanent revolution. So on all, pretty much on all fronts, we see the, the, the left attempting with much success to march through our most important institutions. Let me give you uh, two other data points, if I can, and see if you agree, because I think they're big and telling, at least from where I sit. You're in D.C., I'm here. Um, one is when you see or when I have callers who say, you know, the Democratic Party isn't the squad, um, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Aliana Presley, okay, maybe – but they had primary opponents, and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, endorsed not the primary opponents and endowed and funded not the primary opponents. I think that's a big tell. I'll tell you another one I, I, I see. Um, this race in Georgia. Whoever thought I'd hear Jeremiah Wright's name again? Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, not only is he back, but now Barack Obama is apologizing for him. And see, in 2008, Barack Obama gave that famous speech denouncing him because he had to, obviously. Now right. he's saying he was taken out of context in the <laughs> same about the same damn sermon. Damn sermon, right? Yeah. This is what I don't know that most analysts understand about our concerns and fears. We don't see Joe Biden um, when he says, do I look like a socialist? We see the party of Joe Biden that is socialist, I think. Right. Well, I mean, there's a straight line from the squad to Bernie Sanders right. to help inspire them. Right. And there's a straight line from Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden because Joe Biden uh, agreed to much of uh, the platform that Bernie Sanders w was pushing. But Biden is Biden's not a socialist. He's not anything. He, he's not. He's a man of no principle. He's been on the, on both sides of most issues and. And sometimes flips flip several times on them, um, policing being you know being an example. So so to, to say that Biden is no socialist is, is meaningless. That what matters is how he intends to govern for his, for whatever limited period he's able to govern. And he's he's made it clear by adopting pretty much the Sanders platform that uh, that's how he's going to go. That's that's which way the wind is blowing. And he, as always, he has throughout his entire career, he's going to go with it. Yeah, that's that's right. Biden may not have any strong principles, but it's not true to say the Democratic Party doesn't. It's pretty clear what their principles are. And they are increasingly, I mean, Dennis Prager, you, you, you know, Dennis, he, he, he talks about the distinction between left and liberal and, you know, pines for for the liberal who's increasingly rare or decreasingly common. I don't know who that is in the Democratic Party is anymore. I mean, they've chased most of them out. The last one might have been Joe Lieberman, but I remember the DNC funded his primary opponent, and he right. registered an independent and then left. Well, there are a few of them who ran, who, who appeared in the early debates. That guy Delaney, the co former congressman and successful businessman from Maryland, and one or two others, maybe that guy Ryan, the representative from Ohio, none of them ever cracked 1%. Right. In any poll or in any primary. 
And they were all gone by, you know, by the third or fourth debate. And isn't it interesting that they never made any news before their primaries? They weren't talked about. They weren't thought as power, no. powerful or leaders or people to listen to. That was the apex of their power in the de- or at least attention in the Democratic Yeah, in party. most cases. I mean, I guess you could call Hickenlooper maybe in that category, the governor of Colorado. Maybe. Who now, who's now a senator. But, yeah, that's, that's borderline. But he... He never got over 1% either. No, that's right. That's right. Maybe. Now, people will say possibly Joe Manchin is a liberal. He's not really a liberal. He's just a different kind of old-school Southern Democrat, isn't he? I think. I don't know. It, it, it probably doesn't matter. The point is, if there's only one, you have a, you, you know, there's 99 others that really, I think, do defer to what the chair of the DNC said when he said AOC is the future of the Democratic Party. I think you've got to take that seriously, right? Right. And then Tom Perez was probably the most radical member of the radical Biden camp, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Obama cabinet. And now he's uh, he's the head of the uh, Democratic National Party. No, that's right. That's a good reminder. That's that's a very good reminder. And so we get blamed for engaging in conspiracy theory. And I just laugh. I, I, I think they don't know what the term means. The entirety of the last four years was one big conspiracy theory against Donald Trump between the media and education and entertainment axis, wasn't it? Yeah, I agree. In a conspiracy theory, um, you know, there's, that's also misused in, in the in the Kaaba service uh, article and book. If, if, if you get back to that, I mean, they, they, they say that, well, there, there's some valid working class grievances that the Republicans, <laughs> that, that, that the Republicans are feeding off of. But they're doing it by advocating conspiracy theories. That that is that the ruling class and the Eastern elites are deliberately trying to undermine America. Well, that, well, on tra- in trade and immigration, everyone knows that there are trade-offs. Uh, they, they may the intent may not be to undermine America, but the clear effect of of immigration policy is to hurt. The working the working class, the workers who have to compete against illegal immigrants. So it doesn't require a conspiracy theory to call them out on that, and to say that the, you know they're taking one side, knowingly taking one side against working Americans. Besides which, if that's your beau ideal of an example of a conspiracy theory, it's pretty thin. It's pretty small beer to think we Republicans go or conservatives go around talking about that that much. We just don't. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Paul, you're great. It's nice to catch up with you, sir. I appreciate you joining us and talking with us. Always my pleasure. Thank you, sir. You betcha. Take care. God bless. 602-508-0960. Your show here on out. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're thinking about selling your home or if you're looking to buy a home or third category, if you're in the process of selling your home and it's not going well, call my friend James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. He'll flip that script for you in the third case. And in the first two cases, he'll do a great job for you. He guarantees to sell your home at market value or pay the difference. He'll make up the difference if he doesn't. He can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer if you are in more of a hurry. You can do it within 24 hours of reaching out to him. 
He is the number one selling individual agent in Arizona, according to the Phoenix Business Journal. I know a lot of people have used James, and they love him as much as I do. Give him a call at 480-386-0711 or visit James Wexler online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com. Dana and Chandler, where have you been? How are the Louchins? How are you? The, the Louchins are great. Um, I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. We're all good here. Good. Um, the Louchin clan has temporarily grown, which is what I've been up to the last few days. Dana, and for I those that to... don't know, Dana raises Louchins, which which are a dog, um, and uh, a dog breed. And if you've ever seen the series Heart to Heart, that was a Louchin. Anyway, that I just... sure was. Yeah. Had to... So just... I'm calling because I had an interesting weekend, and I wanted to share with you and your listeners, because I'm sure most people aren't traveling these days, so don't really know what it's like out there. Yeah, tell us and what it's like. And I had the pleasure or displeasure, depending on how you look at it, of flying to Rochester, New York this weekend and back. Okay. And New York is a very interesting animal in that when you fly to New York, you are required to fill out a form upon entering the state. And you can either do it online and you have to keep a copy of the confirmation that you've done it online or you have to fill it out on paper. And the questions that it asks are... Your name, your birth date, and your address. Where are you going in New York? How long are you staying in New York? What was your flight in? What seat did you sit in on your flight on the way in? Where did you come from on the way on your flight on the way in? Um, you know, how long are you staying? What's your phone number? Can we text you? Can we email you? Give us your email. I mean, really, a lot of questions and a lot of very personal things that I was not comfortable um, sharing with the state of New York. I didn't really think it was any of their business what I was doing there. Um, and... It is punishable by a $2,000 fine if you do not fill it out or if you um, do not have a copy that you have done it online. And believe it or not, there is Army National Guard waiting for you as you come up from the concourses. And nobody passes by them without either filling out the form, handing them a form, or showing them the confirmation that they have done it online. Um, If only we could adapt that process to our voting but they're perfectly <laughs> fine with illegal immigration. Right, right, right. No, I get it. But me flying in for two days to right. pick up a dog that I sold to someone there and bring it home, they basically wanted to know my entire health history. It was a little bit surreal because the last I checked, our Constitution gives us freedom of movement and between the states, correct? Freedom of travel. One of the things... Um that was I can't get out of my head from an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with Alex Berenson. He wrote a booklet on masks, finding the science very wanting on them. He um, I, I asked, you know, what were the reasons then for such a such an attitude of of enforcement over it? And he had several. But the one that I can't get out of my mind is he said part of him often thinks that it was perhaps some kind of unarticulated trial run to see what they could get the American people to do. And what worries me about listening to you is not what I said semi-seriously, which is it sounds like a pretty good regimen for how we should watch people going into a voting booth. But what worries me is that we're going to find this in the airports in all our cities and states. That's what worries yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, what? how do you – you have to comply on some level because you have to have that confirmation email. So, you know – I look at it and I think, 
okay, well, they're telling me I have to comply. I know what my rights are in this country. I know that it's really none of their business what I'm doing here. It's really none of their business that I'm here at all. And yet it, there's, you know, this $2,000 fine. So what do you do? Do you not fill it out and you risk a $2,000 fine and getting arrested and going to jail and then having to fight for your rights, which are given to you in the Constitution? So why do you have to fight for them in a court of law? Or do you give them information just enough that it looks legit that they might be able to figure out who you are but you transpose some numbers yeah you want to tell i, I gotta hit the break you want to hold and we'll continue this sure. and, okay on the sure. other side and steve i'll get to you as well welcome welcome back to both of you i haven't heard from either of you in a long time it's nice Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. if you want to join as well i'm seth leaps and we will be right back Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We're talking with Dana from Chandler, who was telling us about her travels to New York recently, where she had to, uh, well, it seemed like it was crossing Checkpoint Charlie practically back before the Berlin Wall came down. Is that about a fair summary of it, Dana? Yeah, I think that's a very fair summary. Um, the other thing that I found very interesting were, um, and I can only tell you about the airline that I flew, because you know, I can't tell you what but this particular airline at the gate constantly telling you, you have to have a mask. It has to cover your nose. It has to cover your mouth. It can't be this fabric. It can't be that fabric. It has to be this kind. And if you don't have one, come get one. And beating it into our heads like we're children. Yeah. Um, and they don't offer service anymore on the flight. Now, no. Phoenix, I, I didn't go direct to Rochester, but Phoenix to Baltimore is, you know, a lengthy flight. Yeah. They offer you a snack like a little, you know, a little bag of peanuts or a little check mix thing. They don't even offer you anything to drink anymore. All they offer you is water, and it's already pre-poured and in little cups, and they just hand you this cup of water. It's like going to the dentist, it sounds like. It, it, it was so surreal, and I thought, you know, we, we always know that, you know, the airlines are trying to do um, less and less for us. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I'll betcha when this, what, it, well, not when, if any of this ever ends, um, you'll never see soda and alcohol in an airplane. Again. There's this weird, I, there's this weird self-reinforcing or vicious cycle going on. Airlines will tell you they're struggling. The reason they're struggling is because there aren't passengers. The uh -huh. reason there aren't passengers is twofold. One, the measures they're cutting down and making travel in many respects obviously less pleasurable than it used to be, but that's been on a trajectory since, uh, oh, I don't know, September 15th, 18th, Yeah, they're as miserable as they can make it for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So you can't think of flying, if you watch a movie from the 50s, 60s, or 70s, don't think of flying like that anymore. You have to think of flying as nothing more than a greyhound in the air. That's you know, you're right. You know, you just think of it as a massive bus in the air. In fact, one of the major airplane companies is called Airbus, right, from France, right, Airbus. They manufacture, yep. I don't know, half our domestic fleet probably or a lot, a big part of our domestic fleet. In any, in any event, um, there's this vicious cycle going on here on that score. The New York thing is interesting to me because I, I know Governor Cuomo has issued these – um, requirements of what you have to do to enter New York. And what's really interesting about them, as I understand them, they only apply to travelers 
who aren't from what they call contiguous states, touching states. So if you flew in from New Jersey, no problem. But if you fly in from Arizona, problem. Now, what's interesting to me about that is New Jersey is doing worse than New York when it comes to coronavirus, at least deaths. So there's not even a rational basis for what New York is doing under the theory of health and police powers that the governor there's has. There's nothing rational. Right. It, there's, it, there's, it makes absolutely zero sense because I could drive to New York. Right. And from Arizona. Right. And, you know. Right. And it, then it, what? The whole thing was beyond creepy. Yeah. Um, and I, like I said, I, you know, I, when and if it ever goes away, but, you know, I, I'm going to be hard. I got to. I'm going to be I think if is the right question, though. If is the right question, because a lot of these well, the Department of Homeland Security measures that we were okay with after 9/11 for a bit have now just right. become regularized. Yep, exactly. And and that that was the second part of of the reason why I called. And and the second part was wanting to know your thoughts on this whole you know mass thing and what you were talking about at the beginning of the show and compliance percentages and that basically it, it, it it's not making a difference and my fear is that the masks will stay forever even when the vaccination comes that that vaccination isn't going to get rid of the mask and then vaccination isn't going to even return anything back to normal until it's to a certain percentage of the population and it's going to be some arbitrary number, just like the arbitrary numbers, like for my kid's school to open. They need this, this, and this benchmark. But, you know, of course, the benchmarks change daily. And they will use that. And then the people that refuse to be vaccinated, you know, my body, my choice, will be the pariahs of society. Um, because they are, they are the ones preventing society from opening up fully. So an interesting so, thought. So, like now, yeah. you're the you're the bad guy if you're not wearing the mask. Right, right. The bad guy is going to be turned into those of us who will not be vaccinated. <laughs> the the weird thing about the mask, I, first of all, when when the CDC director said the mask will protect me more than a vaccine, I thought be afraid and be very afraid when he said that. A B. The thing about masks when they first started being. Um, ordered to go shopping, et cetera, et cetera, around here. When was that? Do you even remember? I don't remember when that was. Do you remember when that? Oh, it was It June? was still summertime. It was yeah. god-awful hot. June. I remember So that. one of the things I remember about it was I actually thought twice about doing things like going into a store or could I go to restaurants? Maybe. I don't remember exactly. But I remember thinking twice about going out just because it was a hat going into the grocery store or the drugstore. It was a hassle. Because it was just a hassle to put the mask on, carry it, remember, <laughs> yep. put it on, take it off, put it on. It just it – was, it was a dissuasive thing. And and you know what? In my own personal experience, because, you know, I'm compliant um, with going to a grocery store and doing what they tell me, you know, I, I don't even really think about it now. And I think that was always the goal. It's now becomes that too has become so regularized. I hate it. I don't think they do anything good except make other people feel good that they're doing something. I don't think any of the state science bears it out. I don't think any of the country comparisons bears it out. It makes no sense that these cities with 96 plus percent compliance are having 
uh, case increases. It, it makes no sense that the mask has any validity there at all. All our major urban cities, all our major cities, urban and non-urban, I think it makes us broadcast to each other to be afraid. I think it makes us broadcast to each other that we are a sick society when we are not. And I think it makes us walking billboards of fear and panic when we should not be. And I worry about a democracy that can so easily be moved into fear and panic. I worry a lot about it. I worry a lot about what it's done to us. A lot. It was brought to you in part by Balance of Nature, the most effective whole food supplement on the market. One daily dose gives you tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables, all good, potent stuff to boost your immunity and improve your health. I take it every day. They're offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. Makes a great holiday gift, too. 800-246-8751. Again, make sure to use discount code BALANCE. I'll end. Steve, give me a call tomorrow. I'll put you right on. I didn't have time for you today. I'll end where I began on this Pearl Harbor day with what Churchill wrote in his diary the night he heard of Pearl Harbor. Silly people, and there were many, not only in enemy countries, might discount the force of the United States. Some said they were soft, soft, others that they would never be united. They would fool around at a distance. They would never come to grips. They would never stand bloodletting. Their democracy and system of recurrent elections would paralyze their war effort. They would be just a vague blur on the horizon to friend or foe. Now we should see the weakness of this numerous but remote, wealthy, and talkative people. But I had studied the American Civil War, fought out to the last desperate inch. American blood flowed in my veins. I thought of a remark which Edward Gray had made to me more than 30 years before. The United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. We still that country? You think we're still that country? You think so? Or are we a country that would fool around, that would not come to grips, that would not stand bloodletting, that does put us in easy paralysis? Are we a country of... The America Churchill knew, rightly, then, or of silly people. I worry about that. Until tomorrow, thank you for staying with us. God bless and class dismissed.